Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here. Good to see you again. In this episode of Full Potential Now, Ted sits down to talk with journalist and author Joshua Shea, who is here to discuss pornography, addiction, control, and his book, Porn and the Pandemic. Join us as Joshua shares his story of addiction, recovery, and how the pandemic changed everything. Don't go anywhere. All right. So I have the absolutely amazing Joshua Shea on the show today. He's a pornography addiction expert slash author. And you have a new release coming out called Porn in the Pandemic, How Three Months in 2020 Changed Everything. Yeah, it was actually just released. Um, it's now on Amazon. Uh, you can look for the title, like I said, Porn in the Pandemic. You can look up my name, or you can go to my website, recoveringpornaddict.com, and there's a link right to the uh, Amazon page there. And it takes a look at the months of March, April, and May of 2020, and essentially how the online porn industry uh, transformed overnight with everybody in the world having to stay at home and being on their computers and not having that person-to-person contact, it was Valhalla for the pornography companies, and uh, they absolutely seized upon it. So it's it's a different online world than it was even six, eight months ago um, as, as we record this in August 2020. You know, January 2020 looked nothing like it does today. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, before we jump, let's jump into that in a little bit. But um, tell us a little bit about where you're from, um, a little bit about your and a little bit about your story and how you got into it. Yeah. Yeah. In a nutshell, um, I was uh, a pornography addict from the word go. I saw hardcore pornography for the first time when I was 12 or 13 years old, uh, introduced by an older cousin. Um, I'm kind of textbook when it comes to who an addict is, uh, depending on exactly which study you look at. Between 90 and 94 percent of porn addicts have some type of unresolved trauma, uh, usually some kind of sexual, physical or mental abuse. But it can be other types of trauma as well. Um, And I I fall into that as far as uh, mental and sexual abuse at the hands of a babysitter when I was young. And I truly believe that pornography helped me to... uh, deal with that trauma when it was still fresh and actually helped me to repress those memories and allowed me to move on because I ultimately learned when I got into uh, rehab at when I was 37 years old and ultimately decided it was time to get some help, um, I learned that my pornography addiction was about control. And when you think about control, it makes sense with pornography. As a little kid, I lost control in that in that environment that I was in. And that environment was a sexually inappropriate environment, sexually abusive environment. So it almost only makes sense that I enjoyed pornography or I found my safety and my control in pornography because the person on that magazine page or on the computer screen can't say no to you. If I want to have a 
white woman that day, I can. If I want to have a black woman that day, I can. If I want to have three women, two men, a horse, and Irish music, I can. It's all about control, and that's what that's what pornography was for me. It was it was a way for me to exert control in my life, and that was where the addiction was. That was what it did for me. I don't think it had a lot to do with what was on the page. I don't think it had a lot to do with what people were doing on the page. It had it. it tickled that itch in my pleasure center, uh, in my brain where the dopamine and the oxytocin and all that fun stuff lives, it scratched that itch that needed to convince me that I had control in my life. Um, eventually, when I faced up to the addiction, I did go into rehab for it. Um, I am a journalist by trade. Uh, I'm a big researcher. I like reading academic studies. I'm, I'm that geek. But uh, I know most people aren't. And when I tried to find resources uh, about pornography, there's very little out there for the layman. Uh, I could learn about addiction as a whole, but very little about porn addiction. And when I finally went to rehab, I met people with porn addiction, all, all types of people. There is no stereotypical addict. But what I, you know, I learned that I wasn't alone. And that was such an important, powerful message that I decided to do the one thing I know how to do in this world, which is write. And I started, I first wrote a book about my story about pornography, just uh, pretty much a straight up autobiography of the last few years of my life before getting help. And I expected to get response from addicts, which I did, but it blew my mind that I got so much response from partners of addicts that after talking to them for six, eight months online, uh, I teamed up with a uh, licensed marriage and family therapist that I know, and we co-wrote a book together specifically for the partners of addicts, much like my wife was. And she even commented to me that there's so little for addicts out there, there's even less for their wives. And wives, girlfriends, even family members uh, suffer differently with porn or sex addiction than a lot of other addictions out there. Um, and I've been giving presentations at colleges and, and uh, libraries, churches before the pandemic started. Um, and I'm going to be giving a TED Talk later this year uh, about pornography and how we can deal with the younger generation and perhaps bringing down some of these astounding numbers. Um, and I just really, you know, I feel like my life right now is about pushing the fact I, I'm not anti-pornography. I'm not about shaming. Uh, I know there are a lot of sidetracks with trafficking and other things like that. My big belief is just that we need to educate our young people that much like smoking or drinking um, or, or some of these addictions, pornography can turn into addiction. You know, make your own choice when you're 18 years old, but let's at least teach these children, you know, that it can be potentially harmful because I wonder if my parents had done that with me, if I would be where I am today. That is a great cause, man. You're, you're inspiring it. I'm going to love this conversation. This is good stuff. So I did an interview with Stacy Sprout maybe about a year ago. She's kind of talked a little bit about she's a sex therapist, but she had talked about what what you're touching on. And so I want to get your perspective on it. And it's this idea that sort of like the brain, the younger you are, the more it gets sort of like 
hard, I would say hardwired, hotwired towards porn. And then she talked about the dopamine dump happening, becomes associated with it. And then she said that what oftentimes will happen brain chemistry wise is that people will need to seek out more and more like hardcore porn to get the same effect. And I don't know if you've well, heard they, any of that in, in Rhea, but if absolutely. you think, think of it this way, addiction is addiction is addiction is addiction for what's going on in your mind. Yes, there will be different side effects depending on your addiction, but it's a lot like an alcoholic who starts with beer and then has to move to wine and then has to move to the hard stuff to get that same feeling. Or it's the gambling addict who starts with $50 a hand at blackjack, but then that's not exciting, has to go to 100, then 200, then 500. Pornography is the same way. I mean, it was, I was into very vanilla pornography for the longest time. Uh, but when I would be at my worst, when I needed it as a crutch at those times in my life, especially, uh, and I, I've been sober six years now, but th that last year or two before I got help, um, that was some of the most extreme, bizarre stuff. Um, that I looked at because just seeing a guy and a girl having sex wasn't enough. Just seeing, you know, two girls modeling wasn't enough. I needed to find, you know, w w you know, other genres. And you can go on to Pornhub or any other site, and they got, you know, 120 different genres for, you know, BDSM and old people and playing with food and, you know, any 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 crazy genre you can imagine. And I have probably seen them all because a lot of porn addicts who reach that critical phase that I did report this quest for the perfect porn clip, you know, that porn addicts will spend 30 minutes in front of a computer and that turns into an hour and that turns into two hours and then four hours because they want to get their that little pleasure center tickled, yet they can't find the right clip. They can't find the right picture. They keep looking and looking and looking. And then hopefully, you know, they're they're praying they find that right picture. They're praying that's the piece that tickles their brain. They can get off and be done with it. Because for the porn addict, uh, again, it's not necessarily what's on the page. People compare uh, recreational use of pornography to addicted use when really the only thing they have in common is the orgasm at the end, which is kind of the checkered flag that says you're done. That's yeah. that's really the only thing that it has in common uh, with, with you know, recreational use of it. Um, addicts are using for completely different reasons. So is there, yeah, talk a little bit about, because I think like for the listener, oftentimes I'll hear this, they'll say, Ted, is all porn bad? Is there such a thing as a healthy porn user, or is there also a thing of like anybody who uses porn is going to be addicted to it? So, what's your perspective on that? Uh, okay, uh, take it. I'll take it backward first. Uh, science tells us that not everybody who looks at porn is addicted. Statistics tell us not everybody that looks at porn is addicted. Um, the the scariest statistic that I repeat to people is there was a study done, I think it was in 2017 or 18, uh, and it found of eight, it interviewed 1,500 people or men of all ages in the 18 to 30 year old group, 32% of men said that they either have a problem with pornography or are addicted to it. That, that, that was self-reporting. 
but that's still 32%. One out of three men said they had a problem. Now, that's scary, but that still means that two out of three men who look at pornography don't have a problem with it. Much like there are people who can go and have one or two beers, and then that's all they need, or they can go to a casino, win $50, lose $50, or, you know, it's it's one of these things where who knows exactly why you become addicted to the substance or behavior you do, but it's absolutely possible to not be an addict. To tackle your other question about uh, the health around pornography, um, I, I usually say, you know, I can present to you dozens, if not hundreds of studies that show pornography affects you in all kinds of ways, whether it's your marriage, your development, physical, mental, um, that say pornography is negative. I have still not had a single person give me a study that says pornography is good for you. And when people are like, yeah, but that's addicts, that's addicts, I share this story, which is actually pretty new. The last presentation I gave at a college back in December uh, was to a group of about a dozen uh, uh women in the health center of a call of a local college here in Maine. And they said something that absolutely blew my mind. We were talking about pornography. And uh, one of these women said, I don't like having sex with virgin men because they've been raised on pornography. And that's not real. And a lot of the women around, yeah, yeah, me either. I don't, I don't want to be with a virgin. Yeah, I don't. Virgin men are the worst, because we have a we have a generation of men who have been raised on pornography online, and even the most vanilla pornography usually shows a man being aggressive towards a woman, holding her down, calling her names. Uh, when it comes to the end, usually they're finishing on a woman's face, uh, which is degrading. It's when when a guy who has never had sex gets into this position with a woman, they're taking their cues from the pornography they've seen that they think is completely normal. They think that's what the woman wants. And these women at, at this uh, college said they don't want to spend the time to retrain these guys. They don't want to have to explain to them that what they're seeing on the the screen isn't what people do in real life. And to me, that's the that's the most telling story I've heard in the last year about why pornography is not healthy, because it is teaching a generation of men, at least, or young men, about what sex is. And that's not what a generation of women want right now. Yeah. So a couple of things I, I want to bounce off you right now is this idea. It's, it's come, becoming more clear to me, but it's this idea that, you know, like that study that said one third or one out of every three guys reported they might have a problem with porn. Well, two thirds don't, at least by self-report. In Comparing it to other addictions, it's very common. Like the majority of people who drink alcohol do not have a problem with alcohol. But there's a certain right. percentage of people that will have a problem with alcohol. So porn is really no different from that standpoint. That we have the majority of people that can probably watch it but not become addicted. But then we have a percentage of people that will. So I think that's interesting. And the other point that I, I really think about, too, is the development you know, with this uh, this thing that really stands out in your mind over the past year with this discussion with this in healthcare with these women, 
is the impact on young people's minds. So like, let's say a nine or 10 year old, 11 year old stumbles into porn. And so I have a 10 year old boy now. And what's interesting is he plays, he's a gamer. He plays on YouTube. Well, there's no, there's no damn censorship on YouTube. They can either be on kids, YouTube, which a lot of kids are like, well, that's completely lame. I don't want to be on that because I can't watch these gaming guys that I like to watch on my videos. Right. But once you open the door to that, then you get these ads popping up on the side. And some relatively innocent, but he said, well, I clicked on that, and then it led to this. So then we ended up, he ended up like, I th- we, we talked with him, and he thought it would be a good idea just not to have YouTube which is probably a good decision, but this is a major issue, I think, especially as I've dived more and more into this topic area with younger, so I think of my exposure has been mostly hearing from parents with young boys who are discovering porn on the internet at like the ages of 9, 10, 11. The average boy sees hardcore pornography for the first time uh, today at age eight, and the average girl sees hardcore pornography for the first time at age 10. That's incredible, incredible. And that shapes the brain, right? Yeah, absolutely. And while while YouTube will claim that it doesn't have pornography, you know, it's one of these things where they have created a million and one gray areas. Like uh, you can see uh, an endless supply of videos of women getting their nipples pierced. That's not considered uh, pornography. You can see a ton of nude yoga. That's not considered pornography. And the way they, they skirt so many issues uh, when it comes to it, and I've always tried to share with people, yeah, we understand pornography is that hardcore triple X stuff, but pornography is also a concept. It is basically whatever, you know, gets you off. And that can be a yoga video. That can be the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue or a Victoria's Secret catalog or good housekeeping. You know, it doesn't have to be what we consider the X-rated pornography. If a good housekeeping magazine is doing for you what a penthouse magazine is doing for another guy, how is that really different in any way? In, in my view, it's not because you're utilizing the material in the exact same way. It's still being used as pornography. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very, very interesting. Um, so what do you think about the latest that you're seeing? I know we talked a little bit about this in the kind of the pre-interview, but you made some references to what's been going on since COVID in porn and pornography. And uh, I thought it was completely fascinating. So I don't know if you could share some of those insights on kind of what you've been yeah, seeing. Absolutely. When COVID started, I uh, was asked to do a few interviews um, here and there. And I, I do a lot of interviews about pornography addiction. And people started asking about what I thought would happen during the pandemic. And that was right at the same time that uh, Pornhub offered free access to its premium site for a week to everybody in the world since they were all stuck at home. And for an online pornography company, this has been Valhalla. I mean, what is better than getting 80% of the world's population stuck at home in front of their computers, unable to interact with other people, uh, being alone? I mean, it's 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 a pornographer's dream uh, when it comes when it comes to this. So. 
Um, what we've seen is that there was such a demand for pornography that these different websites and these different cam sites had to actually start recruiting. I kid you not, it's in my book. There was actually a porn site that put out a press release specifically trying to get furloughed McDonald's workers to come to their website and make pornography for them through their webcams. Um, and when you think about it, it makes sense because when the uh, when COVID hit, who lost their jobs first? It was all the service workers. Who are the service workers? The waitresses, the waiters, the bartenders. It's usually young, good-looking, outgoing people who have those jobs. And what we saw was there was a website that's been around for, I think it's two or three years now, out of the UK, called OnlyFans. And that had about uh, 300,000 users or 300,000 people across the world creating pornography. It's essentially like a, a Facebook page where uh, I let people know that I have a page on OnlyFans and then I charge you whatever I want for you to come and subscribe to my page. So let's say I charge you $10 a month. You subscribe to my page. That gives you access to a certain amount of photos and a certain amount of videos. Now, I can make those completely G-rated or I can make those X-rated. Obviously, people tend to move towards the R and X to get people to uh, look at them. What I can also do is charge you to see secret videos and secret photos. And then I can also charge you if you want to text with me or if you want to change messages back and forth. If you want to talk to me, well, it's going to be a dollar for every text we exchange. And there are guys who stuck at home will do this. And this had such an explosion early on that we went from 300,000 creators of pornography on OnlyFans in January to the last number I saw in July was just over 900,000. So that essentially means that we have had more than a half million people decide that they want to go online and they want to produce pornography from the comfort of their own home and make money off of it. And I believe that this is directly because this generation was raised on the internet, was raised on pornography. You know, somebody who's, you know, late 40s like me or 50s like yourself, we were raised with a bit of a taboo towards pornography. There's a bit of a stigma towards it. These kids don't have a stigma towards it, or these young adults, I should say, don't have a stigma. So taking pictures of, you know, your genitals or your butt or your boobs or whatever and posting them online is not as big a deal as it would have been for you or I. Uh, and, and conversely, think about like our grandmothers and, you know, if they had a two-piece bathing suit, there was this much skin showing right at the waist. Uh, uh, you know, it was an inch because they were so much more modest. And what we've seen is that now you've got people willing to, you know, amateurs willing to have hardcore sex acts uh, on screen and charge somebody else $10 to look at them. And, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of people joining this in the last, you know, eight months that 
don't see a problem with it. And I really wonder what's going to be the fallout of that years from now. And I'm not even talking about, uh, oh, what if uh, a future boss sees this? Because I don't think that's going to matter. There's going to be so much porn of so many people you know out there that I wonder more about the mental aspect. I wonder more about the emotional fallout. What happens when you, at 21 years old, spend a year and a half making pornography? Uh, how do you feel about that when you're 30? How do you feel about that? when you're 40. That's kind of what I worry about. And that's not a world we've had to worry about before this COVID-19 virus. That's incredible. You really outline it really well, like connecting the dots, because I've, I've seen that just raising. So I have um, a 21 and a uh, 19 year old uh, girls and I have a 10 year old boy, but watching them go through high school and then hearing stories like near the end of their high school years of other students posting stuff of, you know, nude pictures, that sort of thing, the school getting wind of it, um, getting called the office, suspended, et cetera. But as, as I kind of retrace my steps as they've gone through high school and now they're in college, I saw like it, it jives with what you're talking about. Like we saw, I saw an increase of episodes like that. Like it, became, it seemed like it was more common than I ever thought well, it was. And like I mentioned, in talking about this over the last several months, I have found that the line of demarcation is 33 years old. If you're over 33, odds are you've never heard of OnlyFans. I bet if you asked your daughters, you know, uh, whether you want to or not, have you heard of OnlyFans? That is part of their current culture. Much like Snapchat was part of youth culture for a couple of years before the rest of us heard of it. It's, it's just startling how many people are making pornography and and think about this, how the world has changed. When you or I were in high school, if there would have been a picture of the popular good-looking cheerleader in a bikini, oh my God, people would have gone nuts for that. Can you believe that we've got this this girl in a picture in a bikini? Yeah. And now every, everybody with an Instagram, every girl with an Instagram has to have bikini photos on it. Every high school guy on Instagram has to have a picture of him with his shirt off just wearing shorts. Um, you know, that's just the normal everyday culture, how much that has changed. And now instead of a bikini picture being extreme like it was for us, now the extreme is the sexting pictures that get passed around, the, you know, nude pictures that they send each other. And then once they turn 18, there's nothing illegal about it. So they're producing more of it. Um, there was a statistic I saw not too long ago that said for the first time uh, in history a couple of years ago that the people who are producing the most child pornography are the children. That is it. Yeah, that this as we connect the dots, this makes so much more sense on the trajectory that this generation is on um, and that we would suddenly see this huge influx of young people making their own porn and trying to make money off of it. And then you have COVID that hits. So you like you're saying all these people in the service industry, they get laid off, et cetera. Well, what else can you do? And you could probably maybe make more money doing that working less hours. A lot of them do. I, I interviewed several for my book and they were like, I can either fold clothes at the gap for $14 an hour or I can work three hours a day and make two, three hundred dollars 
talking to guys online. And all I have to do is post one photo a day. You know, I take a picture of myself when I get out of the shower. I post that. And then I spend three hours talking to them. And uh, there's two, three hundred dollars. Why do I want to go back to folding shirts at the Gap? Yeah, yeah, that's a, it's a it's this is like very compelling the more you think about it and how young people are getting hooked into it. So what? let's talk more about, like, I, I like where you started out when you talked about the control. Like we were talking about porn addiction and that it really maybe didn't have even so much to do with what was on the magazine or in the video as much as the control. Because I think back, um, so I've been in the addiction field for a long, long time, and just working, one of the key issues we had, like, I, I especially think back to my residential days, and really and even outpatient days that people really that got hooked oftentimes the key the key ingredient between all of them was getting connected relating to other people getting support and coming to terms with their own feelings and i don't know if yeah, it's and that, that that's was, simple but well it's, it's simple but boy it is some damn hard work yeah and and that's the thing i mean that was for me i'm i'm like i'm now six and a half years sober i still go to therapy once every two weeks and early on i had to uh go every week sometimes twice a week sometimes two hours at a time like i said i i told you you know in our pre-interview that i did go to a rehab for pornography in texas i was there for seven weeks and you know i really had to learn and i appreciate this and, and you obviously know this is that uh, addiction is usually a symptom of a bigger problem. It is. And that's what I didn't understand is I thought this was my problem. So in the, any, any of those times that I tried to pull it back, any of those times I might have tried to quit, well, the pornography was serving a bigger master. You know, it, it was it was then that master demanded that it be served. So I couldn't quit. What I had to do was go into this intense therapy and ultimately learn what it was that caused this. And it was the fact that when I was five, six years old, that when I was creating my survival skills uh, at the home of this babysitter who I went to when my parents were at work, is that I developed survival skills that were very maladaptive for a five-year-old, so they weren't going to work for a 15-year-old or 25-year-old or 35-year-old. And I, you know, I had my safety taken away there. I had my sense of control taken away there. There was nothing I could do. And I look at the rest of my life as things like, you know, I needed control, so I collected more baseball cards than anyone I ever met. I needed control, so I started my own businesses so I could be the boss. Uh, you know, I needed control. So every room in my house that, you know, I could, uh, you know, I could put my foot down. That's the color that I wanted it. You know, since I, since I've been in recovery, my wife's painted every wall in our house to whatever color she wants because I let that go. Yeah. But what's what's amazing is that once I learned how I became the person I became, it was actually not that hard to let go of the pornography because I learned who the master was that was being served. And yeah, I needed to have techniques and I needed to go through a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, so in the moments when I was having issues, I could, I could, 
you know, make a, make a healthy choice. And it's not just about pornography. It's about deciding I was never going to follow politics again. It was about pulling myself off of Facebook and not being there. You know, I had to make myself a much healthier life. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy helped me in real terms to create that life, while the deeper therapy helped me understand how I became the person I did. And that was what recovery is. And now I come on, you know, shows like yours. And this is part of my recovery, just talking about it, spreading the information, spreading what I've learned, um, because I don't want people to end up where I was. I firmly believe that pornography needs to be talked about by parents, but pornography is not part of the sex talk. Pornography is part of the cigarettes or drinking talk. It is a substance that is out there that needs to be avoided by young people. When they're 18, they can make their own decisions, good, bad, or indifferent, but it needs to be brought up as part of the, this is the stuff you stay away from when you're young. It's not a matter necessarily of, you know, this is not what mommy and daddy do. This is not, you know, making babies. This is something different. Uh, you can talk about pornography as part of the sex talk, but I think it needs to be part of the warnings talk. And I think you can make that very age appropriate. Yeah, so this is this is really interesting because this is a challenge because I want to talk about the impact on partners for sure um, with porn addiction, but this other piece is about the kids. And I, I hear some parents saying, well, they're kind of unsure of, well, it's out on the internet. Is it part of sexual exploration? Do we like demonize it? Do we say like that's a horrible thing to even look at, make the kids feel bad for looking at it? So I hear that in this, what I'm talking about is in a lot of parents' heads. Like, all right, so my kids saw some, what do I do about it? Um, do we just let it go? Just say, don't go to that site again. Or well, do I we think handle that, it a different well, way? Yeah, well, I, like I said, I think that it has to be uh, age appropriate. You know, you can tell a six-year-old if you are on the computer or the iPad or you're with a friend and they're on the computer and you see some pictures of people without their clothes, you know, that that's not really for kids to look at. That's supposed to be for adults. And if you see something like that, you know, just let mommy or daddy know and leave it at that. Yeah. Ta-da. If you, if you see a cigarette... Don't put it in your mouth. Ta-da. It's just as simple as that. As the kids get older, you can bring up more. I mean, I believe that, uh, especially with, with boys, if you tell 13 or 14-year-old boys about porn-induced erectile dysfunction, you are going to deal with a huge amount of the pornography problem because 13 and 14-year-old boys want girlfriends. They do like looking at porn when they can get it, but they want girlfriends, and they don't see anything wrong with porn. However, I, I do a, a advisement and coaching. I worked with a 22-year-old guy last year who had porn-induced erectile dysfunction for the last two or three years. He had a wonderful girlfriend, 20-year-old girl, cute as a button, nice as can be. I talked to both of them online, and they learned he could not finish when they were together unless pornography was playing in the room. No matter what she did, no matter what they tried, pornography had to be playing in the room because with porn-induced erectile dysfunction, the only way that these guys can get off, if they can get off at all, is with pornography. 
So what these two did was they figured out if he was in one room in their apartment, she was in a different room in their apartment, they could Skype or they could FaceTime. And essentially, his brain was told that was pornography. So she would be sexy and doing sexy things over the computer, even though she's only 30 feet away. And when he got to the point that he was stimulated enough, she would essentially run into the bedroom and they would finish like normal people do. And... That was their life. And this is a 22-year-old guy. And this is absolutely tragic. But we're not talking about porn-induced erectile dysfunction. And we're certainly not talking about it to 13- and 14-year-old boys. And that may scare them. And that's not always the worst thing in the world. But I think that it's a – that story, at least, is absolutely a great warning. It's absolutely a cautionary tale. This is what can happen to you if pornography goes too far. So don't let – your pornography go too far. That's just something, don't let your pornography go too far. That's something we don't say to 13-year-olds. And we need to also recognize that more and more females um, who are young are seeing pornography, are enjoying pornography. Pornography was always directed towards the straight white male because that's where the money was at. Now, in today's internet world, it costs almost nothing to create pornography, and it costs almost nothing to distribute pornography. So if you look at statistics of where the pockets of addiction are exploding, you're seeing it with black men. You're seeing it with white women. You're seeing it with uh, the Catholic Church, the LDS Church. All of these groups that didn't go to the adult theater 20 years ago, that would never be caught dead renting a movie, or that didn't have pornography that was geared towards them, well, it's out there on the internet now. So you're seeing, you know what? Straight white men don't have the uh, don't have the exclusive rights on a libido. Everybody has a libido, and now it's easy and it's secretive to get at this stuff. And that's why you're seeing it hit everybody else. So when people tell me, oh, this is a men's problem or this is just a straight guy problem, or it's, it's absolutely not. Anybody can become a pornography addict. And that's really important to underline and italicize and boldface. Anybody can be a porn addict. I want to take some time now to talk about um, partners. So there's a yep. person that gets hooked in they become addicted to porn and they travel a certain journey. And what I learned with addiction from opioids, heroin, the alcohol, the coke, is often the partners are the forgotten ones. And I know we opened this podcast up talking about just a very, not a lot of resources for somebody who is addicted to porn. I'm even surprised there's actually uh, a residential or some sort of sex addiction um, program out in Texas because they're few and far between. They're, I, I mean, I don't know if that's what they specialize in, but they are hard to find. When I when I was looking, and this was back in 2015, uh, I gave it up in 14, and I went to rehab in 15. Um, I think there was seven places in the country that had a real program, and uh, I went to this Texas one ultimately because it had uh, it, it accepted my insurance the best. You know that's how I had to had to go, and they had to say that it was I have bipolar disorder. They had to say that I was there for bipolar, and I was there for impulse control disorder because the DSM still won't 
address addiction because the DSM is so woefully slow at adapting to anything that happens in our world uh, that insurance companies kind of just say, well, porn addiction is not a real thing because the DSM doesn't say anything about it. But the fact is the DSM has been updated, uh, you know, five times since it first came out in 1952, with the last time being 2012 and 1994. Yeah. That's 26 years this thing's been updated twice. We've only really been studying porn addiction for about 10, 15 years, so there's nothing about it there. The World Health Organization has finally created sexual impulse disorder as a diagnosable condition, which is the first step towards eventually getting to sex and porn addiction. But it's one of these things that, you know, there are so there's so little help out there because insurance won't cover it because they don't want to admit that it's a real thing. Yeah, and it's such a parallel because that's pretty much how people who are hooked into alcohol or drugs will pick the the place they go to. It's like whatever place their insurance takes, which makes total sense to me because they don't want to be, you know, socked with a huge bill. But one of the things I learned was that as the person with drug or alcohol addiction travels through their journey, the partner is oftentimes forgotten. They've already gone through the first part of it. And then what's interesting about, I always say this about alcohol and drug addiction, is any kind of addiction is self-centering no matter how you cut it. But like the addiction oh, yeah. is all about the person and the partner goes gets drugged through the mud on that end. And then they go to rehab. And at least in alcohol and drug addiction, it's all about them again. And then near the back end, we open up like family or couple sessions to kind of talk about um, you know, their side of the story, and, and, and they're usually the ones that prompt the person to get in the help anyways. And I always think of this uh, family group I did way back in the day, and I kind of got thrown into it, but it was for uh, men and women who were in the intensive outpatient program for alcohol or drug addiction. It was a four-week family program. So, of course, the first two weeks, they're just getting clean, they're sober, they're the cheerleaders, they're rah-rahing them, this is great, the person, our lives were a complete disaster before, so the fact that they're not using um, is the best thing in the world. But then, usually about the, th is typically about the third week was I always term that the anger group, meaning that the partner saw that this person now is relatively stable, they didn't have to worry about, or, you know, we wanted to always like temper it and kind of pace it out. But really, the partner really saw it as, all right, Ted, you're the referee. Now, I get a chance to tell this person what the hell they just put me through. And I'm going to let them really have it <laughs> because this is what I've gone through. So then really what we see even on the back end of treatment is family therapy and couples therapy is always preferred, but even working in the grind a lot with, you know, seeing tons of clients and that sort of thing and consulting with lots of agencies, family therapy and partner therapies really kind of doesn't necessarily always happen the way it probably should happen. No, I agree with that. And I know based on my time in rehab, uh, you know, they spend the first third tearing you down. They spend the next third building you up, and they spend that last third preparing you for the real world. And then you go back to where the problem was. You go back to the same people. And, you know, 
you feel like a new person, but it's the same old jerks you left. And, you know, you feel like I've got these tools. I'm now going to live a better, healthier life. There's nobody around me living a healthy life. The only people who did were the people I met in rehab. So most, a lot of people I know and a lot of rehab stories I know, there's a ton of friction between the loved ones you go home to and the person who's now in recovery because they have learned to trust this ragtag group of former addicts at rehab and now they don't trust their partner or they don't they want to live a different lifestyle they don't want to you know deal with pornography or gambling or or heroin or whatever it is and what a lot of times breaks these people down and there's nothing sadder than that post rehab where you just start watching people fall like dominoes, uh, whether it's drugs or alcohol or, or eating disorders. And I was at a rehab with every type of person. And you see these people fall down because they can't utilize their new tools. They can't figure out a way to enmesh them into their lives. And thankfully, I had a wife, she works in healthcare, who kind of understood this and understood that, you know, I was on that pink cloud and I was, you know, Mr. Rehab. And, yeah. you know, I had and one of the greatest lines I ever heard in rehab was somebody was new there and they were angry. This is just brainwashing. <laughs> and the, the therapist there said, don't you think you need your brainwashed? <laughs> and it was, it was one of the greatest lines I'd ever heard because it was like, yes, absolutely. But you have to be able to successfully merge the tools you learn in this safe cocoon with the world, the real world. And I think that that's the real challenge. Um, I, I found rehab to be the thing that saved my life. It was the most transformative experience I've ever been through. When I talk to people who are addicts or I talk to their partners, uh, that's the first thing I say is if you have the resources, if you have the means, go to inpatient rehab. It is absolutely, it, it changed my life so much for the better. It put me on a fast track towards recovery. It allowed me to do deep work. It was it was full-time working on myself. It was my full-time job from 7 in the morning till 8 at night was to just focus on how I got so screwed up and try to, you know, tease out why it happened and fix it. And I couldn't imagine, you know, one 12-step meeting a week or one one-hour meeting a week with my therapist wasn't going to do what seven weeks of, of rehab did for me See, this um, is, i'm the biggest proponent of it out there yeah this is so so interesting because you know you know oftentimes people will see porn addiction is much different than alcohol and drug addiction but as you speak joshua there are so many parallels unbelievable amount of parallels i hear like people talk just the way you're talking about their rehab experience and then also people falling like dominoes after they get out, or when we look at people putting them in outpatient or intensive outpatient, going once or twice a week. Well, if the, pro if the problem is at a severe level, it just doesn't cut it. They just go out and keep using. Almost similar to kind of what you're talking about, like if we would have put you in a once a week program, you probably would have probably continued on and maybe even told the therapist what they wanted to hear and get your wife off your back, et cetera. 
Um, well, I was an I was an addict, so I was a liar, manipulator. Uh, I could I could get anybody to. And aside from the fact that I was also an investigative journalist, so I can cold read people like the best fake psychic out there. So I was I was the world's greatest manipulator. You know that that was and you know that's one of the things I have to watch even today because you don't completely change as a person. Uh, you know, and and I'll tell you one thing, and, and uh, I came up with this uh, about a year and a half ago, and I've been repeating it, and people have been starting to do it and telling me just how much they understand now. When you have a partner uh, say, I don't understand how he's an addict, or how do you become an addict? How can you not stop? How can you not do this? I challenge people out there listening who don't truly appreciate what addiction is. Tomorrow, when you wake up in the morning, turn your phone on, Turn the volume all the way up. Turn on every alert, every little chime, everything you possibly can. Then take a post-it note and put it across the screen. And then leave that phone next to you during the day. And don't look at it. And you're going to start feeling things when you hear that text noise or you hear that Snapchat noise or the phone rings or somebody likes an Instagram photo of yours. You're going to start going, oh, i got to look at that. Wait, no, i got to look at that. No, well... You and I grew up at times where there was a rotary phone. If someone died, they had to be lucky enough for you or at home to let you know about it. We didn't have answering machines. We didn't have this, you know, all of a sudden everything, everybody's on top of everybody with social media. We have an addicted society to our phones, but people don't see it as that. So try this tomorrow. Cover up the front of your phone, turn the volume all the way up, and those little feelings you get, two or three times, you're fine. But I bet you that fourth little chime, that fifth little chime, you're dying to know what's behind that post-it note. That is exactly what addiction is, whether it's heroin or porn or gambling or whatever. You, Your mind is telling you, I need to go there. I need to do this. I need to see this. And the way that your mind is telling you to get that satisfaction from finding out what's somebody wants on your little smartphone, that's the feeling we get times a thousand when it comes to our addictions. And telling people that and having some partners actually try that, they've told me that they now better appreciate their partner's addiction after trying that phone experience because they didn't realize how addicted to their phones they were. Yeah, I think it's a phenomenal experiment. I might even start using that on some level. I, I think just for our trademark, trademark, trademark. Yeah, trademark. Listeners, to try it out because I, I think it gives you great yeah. insight into addiction and, and what people struggle with. So, what do you think? Um, where, how do you think your wife got through it all? Just kind of stay with this partner well, like, thing. And I know she was in health yeah, course, like, so, like, she, so she kind of understood the pink helped. cloud. But that, there's a lot of people that, that she understood. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, you know, with porn addiction, it's unlike oh, and sex addiction, it's unlike any other addiction because the partner immediately thinks they did something wrong. If you're a gambling addict, your wife is not thinking, is he this way because I don't make enough money at work? Or if you're a food addict, she's not thinking, is he a food addict because I just make the best spaghetti sauce in the world? Well, no, you don't ask yourself that, that's silly. But when you're a, when you're the partner of a porn actor or a sex addict, 
a lot of times the women ask themselves, am I not enough for him? Am I not enough in bed? Am I not pretty enough? And a lot of times when the addict is in their addicted self, they're blaming their partner. So their partner is actually hearing, yeah, I'm not addicted to porn. It's that you're not having enough sex with me. I'm not addicted to, I wouldn't look at porn if you tried more crazy stuff in the bedroom with me. And so they're getting gaslit by the partner and who is playing directly into the fears that these women have. And they suffer from betrayal trauma because they start to wonder, who the hell did I marry? Who the hell am I in a relationship with? I didn't know this guy was like this. And my wife understood that my porn addiction started when I was a teenager. I didn't meet her till I was 26. So I had 12 or 13 years to perfect hiding it from people. First my parents, then my college roommate, then the roommates I had, uh, and then girlfriends. I was perfect at hiding my porn addiction. And when you're not looking for it, you're not going to find it. People don't go looking for porn addictions. But when it all came out, when it all happened, yeah, my wife was absolutely hurt. Um, she didn't like the fact that, you know, I was sick. She understood I was sick. And that's the key. That's the thing that I have to spend the most time with partners about is the fact that his porn addiction has nothing to do with you. And I always repeat that a couple times in a row. His porn addiction has nothing to do with you. It doesn't matter what he says. He had this coming into things. It has nothing to do with you. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't draw boundaries and, you know, create, be very careful in taking care of yourself and work towards creating a mentally, emotionally, and even physically safe environment for yourself. You have to do that as a partner. You have to take care of yourself. You have to think about self-care. And my wife did that. In my last few years of porn addiction, I was also a workaholic. I was almost never home. I was not healthy. I was drinking more than I should have been. I was kind of estranged from her and the kids in a way. She gained a lot of weight because of the stress. After I went into recovery, uh, she went and uh, got lap band surgery. She went through that whole program at the hospital she works at, and she ended up losing over 100 pounds that she brought on because the people around you when you're an addict get sick too. So she understood the value of self-care. And that's the biggest thing is, number one, educate yourself so you can truly understand no matter what your manipulating addict partner says says, this isn't your fault. And number two, get yourself a therapist and get a strategy for getting healthy yourself, because I can promise you, you're probably not as healthy as you think you are um, after finding out that uh, he, he's an addict. Or you could, you, the man could be the partner and the woman could be the, the porn addict. You know, I, I try to drive that point home to him, but in most cases, it's a, it's a female partner and a, and a male addict. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you touched on this, just that female or the partner perspective and almost feeling like they did something wrong um, and then having to deal with all those feelings. And it actually parallels regular addiction because I work with lots of partners where the person gets, they're in the midst of an alcohol or drug addiction, they blame their partner it's because you're stressing me out. That's why I have to drink or use drugs. It's actually right. really parallels it. But the part about this, though, that really impacts it it's more directly related to intimacy and closeness. 
It, it does, but I also think it doesn't as much as people think. Like, what I got from pornography, I didn't get intimacy from it. I didn't get physical touch. I didn't get love. I still had sex with my wife, but not as much towards the end when my addiction got critical. But you know this. Heroin addicts don't go looking for sex. Alcoholics generally don't go looking for sex, and if they do, they can't perform anyway. Yeah. People who are addicts and are really caught in their addiction are not thinking about sex because they're so unhealthy. They're also unhealthy sexually. And the problem with porn addiction or sex addiction is that it ends in an orgasm. It's that checkered flag. You know, somebody who's a recreational user they know they're done. They know they're done masturbating to porn when they have their orgasm. Well, how does an addict know? Well, they finally have that orgasm too. That's the checkered flag. But I can tell you, I wasn't using pornography the same way that the recreational guy was. And I try to explain to partners that in some ways, it may be better to be the partner of an addict because he's sick. He's got a brain disease. He's not using this because you're not enough. He's using it because he's sick. For the partner of the recreational user, yeah, he's looking at another lady. He may not want to have sex with you tonight. This, this may be a problem in your relationship. When it's an addicted situation, it's so much deeper, so much further that you can't bring it back to I'm not pretty enough because this is a deep, deep well that you have to go into. Yeah, well said, well said, Joshua. Um, I guess maybe in wrapping things up, if somebody was you know, listening to the podcast and the bells are going off for them. They're like, I'm watching too much porn. I think I'm getting addicted. I relate to Joshua's story in so many ways. Um, what would you say to the person and what's a good first step for them? Um, I have learned both with my experience and in dealing with others that the most successful people are the ones who seek out somebody who was an addict in whatever area and was successful or is successful in recovery to talk to them first. Because what you're going to experience, and I have a lot of people who will email me and I'll have a, a Zoom call with them. And I'm the first person who some of these men, after 15, 20 years of addiction, have ever talked to openly about their addiction. And I'm not shaming them and I'm not blaming them. And I don't care what they looked at. I don't care how extreme or weird it was. I know we're, we're not the porn that we look at. And it's such a relief for these guys to talk to somebody that when they're done with me, they want to get help. They want to go to a 12-step meeting. They want to go to a therapist. They want to go online into a forum and learn more about it. So if I'm going to play the percentages, the thing I would say is find somebody who has been through this, who has been successfully through this, that you can talk to, who you can see was exactly where you are, but you can see got to the other side of it. And that'll give you some hope. That'll make you realize it's possible. And that'll give you someone just to unburden yourself with that isn't going to be, am I not enough for you? Or why are you doing this? Or you're a bad person or any of that stuff because they've been there and they know that porn addiction is not an issue of morality. It's a disease. That is like so well said. I, I just love the fact that when you work with people, you sort of like lift up the veil of shame um, so that they can understand themselves and that they're 
and I, and I really like that phrase, you're not your disease, because we, we oftentimes just say that just for generally people with addiction, but especially with porn addiction, you're not actually your disease. That's not your whole entire being or identity. And I could imagine no, I, that that would be a relief for people. Yeah, I, exactly. And, and, you know, the thing is, you can survive without your porn. I think a lot of people who are addicts of all types believe when you remove my addiction, well, who is left? And I'll tell you, it's basically the same person. You know, the, the, the people who thought I was, you know, a complete ass before I got into uh, recovery, a lot of them still think I'm an ass and still think I have a grating personality. And, you know, a lot of the people who loved me, they still love me. You know, you, it doesn't really change your personality. I still like tiramisu and I still like creme brulee. You know, it doesn't change who you are. It's just a better, healthier version of you. So you don't need to fear it. You don't need to fear labels like addict or addiction. It's just a word. Call yourself obsessive. Say it's a hobby gone wrong. Call yourself a pretty, pretty princess. Whatever you need to do to go get help, do it. Because these are just words. They don't matter. I love it. I love it. I love that. Well, Joshua, any closing comments? Uh, just, you know, two things I always try to drive home to people. Number one, there is no stereotypical addict. I have met men, women, every age, every ethnicity, religion, uh, income level, educational level. There is no stereotypical addict. It's not just a 19-year-old guy living in his mom's basement who's never kissed a girl in real life. I know they're out there, but that's just not who porn addicts are. And number two, if you think you have an addiction, get some help. I let mine reach a really critical place where I thought I was going to rehab for 28 days and I went to rehab for 49 days. Get some help for your addiction if you think you have one. Addiction doesn't end well. It ends in financial ruin. It ends in ruin with your family and friends. It can end with legal problems and it can also end with you dying. So addiction doesn't end well. If you think you have any of it, get some help. Well, well said, Joshua. Definitely, um, and I, I would advocate that as well. Reaching out and getting help is the big first step. And obviously, I think it's just a, a really grain of wisdom to think of finding somebody who's already gone through some of the journey to be that first reach out, because you can begin to see maybe a little bit of the light at the end of the tunnel. So I really like those two uh, two big tips. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Joshua. And then uh, we'll put you, you want to say the name of the books you've written? Because I think maybe some of the listeners yeah, might sure, want to sure. um, check you out a little my bit. First book, yeah, my first book was uh, it's just a straight uh, autobiography. Uh, looks at my last few years of addiction. Uh, we'll also do some of the origin story. That's called The Addiction Nobody Will Talk About. Uh, my second book was the one that I co-wrote with the therapist. That's called For Partners. That's called He's a Porn Addict, Now What?, and then the final book that came out earlier this year is uh, Porn in the Pandemic, as we talked about earlier. You can get them on Amazon or come to my website. Uh, there's also a lot of other resources if you think you have an issue or you think a loved one does. My website is recoveringpornaddict.com. Well, thank you so much, Joshua. 
Yeah, thank you for having me, Ted. You know, I can tell my story, but we also need somebody who's going to carry my story and broadcast it. So I appreciate you having the uh, willingness to do that because a lot of people out there, it's still too much of a taboo. It's still too much of uh, something that they're afraid to talk about. And that's the ultimate problem with society right now. We don't have to talk about what the pornography is, but we need to talk about the problem around it. Excellent. Well, thank you. Thanks a lot. Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here again. Thank you so much to Joshua Shea for sharing his time with us today. You can pick up Porn and the Pandemic on Amazon now. If you liked today's episode, you can subscribe, leave a review, and listen to past episodes on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. And visit fullpotentialnow.org for your free TED tools, including where to find a rehab center near you. This episode was produced by Ted Isidore and me, John Procruz. Thanks for listening.